question that we're going to focus on this morning is, can I be truly happy? Can I be really happy in this life? Maybe you've heard some statements about happiness, like this one by Oscar Wilde, who said, some people cause happiness wherever they go. Others cause happiness whenever they leave. Claire Booth Luce, money can't buy happiness, but it can make you awfully comfortable while you're being miserable. And Rodney Dangerfield, my wife and I were happy for 20 years, and then we met. Well, we all have different interpretations of what happiness is and uh, how we achieve it in this life. The Bible also talks about happiness a number of times, and it's particularly in the book of Psalms. Uh, and so today we're going we're gonna to take a closer look and not at just what makes us happy for the moment, but what can truly provide deep, meaningful happiness in our life that lasts. Let's bow in a moment of prayer. Gracious God, we invite you to embolden us today with the courage to hear your word and then to receive it. Breathe your guidance into us so that we can breathe out faithful praise to you. Continue to astonish us with the riches of your word so that we may be shaped and formed into the people that you call us to be. Unleash us to live by faith, to be known by love, and to serve as voices of hope in the world around us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think a lot of people wonder um, today about this mystery in life called happiness. It comes up in a variety of conversations. Think back to the tragic death of actor and comedian Robin Williams in August of 2014. Here was a guy who spent his whole life making other people happy, but was apparently so unhappy in his own life that he chose to take it. Now, I know that there were some neurological and clinical issues to his depression, and I'm not trying to brush over those. His death was a very sad situation, but in the aftermath, it made a lot of people think about what it means to be happy. I also think of Lauren Bacall, who was the last of the golden era Hollywood actors with people like Humphrey Bogart and Judy Garland, who also died in August of 2014. The article I was reading talked about how their, her life, uh, all her life, she went through cycles of happiness and deep despair. Which leads to the question, can any of us truly be happy in life? Can any of us truly be happy in this life? Let me personalize the question for you this morning. Are you happy? One young woman, very active in her church, said, I'm not sure I've ever been totally happy. Maybe you've also felt that way. You go up and down, happy one moment, but not the next. Or let me ask the question in a different way. If life didn't change for you at all from this moment forward, if your situation in life didn't improve, your marital status didn't change, your career didn't progress, your body didn't feel any different than it does today, could you be happy with your life? For those of you who may not spend time on the internet, the search engine Google has a feature called autocomplete. You start to type in a word and it anticipates what you're looking for. I typed into Google um, the words, how can I be? 
And it auto-completed this way. How can I be happy? How can I be sure? How can I be famous? How can I be a model? So that's what Google has to say. Now, how about the Bible? You know, the entire book of Psalms in the Bible opens with the word happy. Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or stand around with sinners or join in with mockers. Other translations use the phrase, blessed is the person or happy is the person. That's what this psalm is all about. It's about how we can be happy. Furthermore, scholars say that since this psalm opens the book of Psalms, it introduces us to the most dominant theme, which is going to appear a total of 26 times throughout this book. Can we be truly happy? And if so, how? Now, I know at this point a bunch of you may just roll your eyes and say, duh, the pastor's asking a question. Where do we find happiness? The next thing he's going to say is, it's in Jesus. Reminds me of a story about a Sunday school teacher who was one day asking her class of first graders. She said, what's gray? Has four paws, a bushy tail, and eats acorns. And one of the little boys raised his hand and he said, it sounds like a squirrel, but we're in Sunday school, so I know the answer has to be Jesus. Someone has said that when we're young, we tend to think happiness is inevitable. We're going to find that special person. We're going to get that perfect job. And if we're patient, happiness, uh, if we're just patient enough, happiness is just around the corner. Life is going to be good. But by the time we get older, that perspective changes to happiness. uh, From happiness is inevitable to happiness is unattainable. I've heard it described as the difference between two of Shakespeare's most famous plays, Much Ado About Nothing and Hamlet. In the end of the play, Much Ado About Nothing, everyone gets to come home. Everybody gets to marry who they want to marry. The person they thought was dead is really alive. The ones who betrayed you didn't actually betray you. Happy ending. And then you've got Hamlet, where everybody dies in the last scene, bitter and disappointed. Sorry for the spoiler alert in case any of you were going home today to read Hamlet. But when we're young and naive, we think life is much more like much ado about nothing. When we grow up, we think maybe it's more like Hamlet. The Bible says that happiness is neither inevitable or unattainable. It's possible. The Old Testament book of Psalms, by the way, was the Hebrew songbook. And so let's see what Psalm 1 says has to teach us. Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or stand around with sinners or join in with mockers, but they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. They are like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither and they prosper in all they do. But not the wicked, they are like worthless chaff scattered by the wind. They will be condemned at the time of judgment. Sinners will have no place among the godly, for the Lord watches over the path of the godly, but the path of the wicked leads to destruction. Now here the psalmist contrasts the godly and the ungodly. Those who walk with God, he says, are like trees with deep roots beside streams of water that bear fruit year after year. They prosper in everything they do. 
The ungodly, by contrast, are like chaff. Now, if you've never spent time around a farm, chaff is the shell around a wheat seed. It's very light, and to separate the wheat from the chaff, people in Old Testament times would put the wheat into a basket, and they would throw it up in the air, and the wind would carry the chaff away. The psalmist uses this metaphor to show us why those who know God can be happy in a way that those who don't know God cannot. He identifies three things that people usually look to to make them happy, but cannot ever make them happy. First, he says, we won't be happy when our happiness is based on circumstances. The psalmist assumes that life goes through seasons. Spring and summer are seasons when the environment is favorable. Winter is the season where life is harsh. There are seasons of drought that threaten to starve us. And we can't cut out the drought and the winter seasons from our life. And if happiness depends on always being in the spring and summer seasons, happiness will always be elusive. Tim Keller in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, says, the modern approach to happiness is to remove any and all suffering, to avoid pain, and if we can't, to sedate it or try to eliminate the discomfort or the injustice. Now, these are all good and worthy goals, but he says no amount of money, power, or planning can prevent bereavement or grief, dire illness, relationship betrayals, financial disasters, or a host of other problems from entering our life. Human life is fatally fragile and subject to forces beyond our power to manage. And we will never succeed at removing all the pain and suffering in our life if our if our whole strategy for being happy is to get and stay in the summer season, whether that's a job, a marriage, a retirement, whatever, we're going to fail. Some of you know the word, uh, the, 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 uh, on the internet is a place called WikiHow. It's a repository of human, the human race's collective wisdom. And it says in there, in WikiHow, that the, uh, the top ten ways to live happily are these. First, to own yourself. Don't apologize for who you are because you're awesome. Second, set meaningful goals for yourself. Third, choose extra activities that make you feel better. Four, focus on people and positive relationships in your life, not on things. Five, push yourself out of your comfort zone. Six, smile or at least fake it. Seven, follow your intuition. You know, which kind of goes against what the Bible tells us. Because the Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things. Hmm, so maybe we shouldn't do everything that our heart says. Number eight, treat your body like it deserves to be happy. Number nine, make money, uh, enough money to meet your basic needs. Hmm, another good piece of advice, except what happens when we lose a job. I know a lot of unhappy people uh, who make enough money to meet their basic needs. Number 10, have deep, meaningful conversations. So what if our life is a huge mess? What if there's no promise that anything is really going to change in our future? Are we to ignore the fact and just assume things are going to get better? That's often the advice of the world today. 
See, there is a difference, the psalmist says, between happiness and joy. And the first question we need to ask is if our happiness is dependent on happenings. We need something deeper than circumstances. We need roots that go deep into something that can endure both the spring and the winter seasons. In Psalm chapter 4, verse 7, David says, You have given me greater joy than those who have abundant harvests of grain and new wine. In other words, he's saying, I have more joy in God than people have when everything in their life is going well. I have more joy in God than I do uh, than people do when they when everything in their life is going well and then he says and when I'm in a season where it's not going well I still have God for the Christian seasons of drought actually can deepen our joy because those seasons are what drives our roots deeper into Christ and in those seasons where Christ is all that we have we discover that he is all that we need. We may never have fame or fortune in this life, but Christ is better than anything the world has to offer. Secondly, we won't be happy when we have no anchor point outside of ourselves. See, a happy person is like a tree with deep roots that anchor their life. And this, this uh, attacks one of the cultural myths head-on in our culture today. The belief that happiness comes from complete freedom. Many people believe that we'll be happy when we have no one to answer to, when we're free to make all of our own rules and decisions, when we're free to define the meaning of life for ourselves. C.S. Lewis compared this to the fish who decides that he wants to be free by escaping the confines of water, and so he flops out of the ocean. True, he is now free of the confines of water, but is he happy? No, because the fish was made for water. You and I are made for God. Look at how the psalmist unpacks this. They are like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither, and they prosper in all they do. But not the wicked. They are like worthless chaff scattered by the wind. They will be condemned at the time of judgment. Sinners will have no place among the godly when we are not anchored to something outside of ourselves there comes a point at which we're just gone you know we're forgotten nothing that we did in life will matter life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing there's no real justice no answer for the yearning and meaning that's deep in our spirit and when we begin to think of life in that way there's an incredible despair that starts to creep over us. And we say, you know, I guess I'll just have fun while I'm, while I'm alive because you only live once and then we're gone. That may work for a while when we're young, but as we get older, we have to start fighting off this suffering, suffocating futility that begins to press in on us. Is there any real meaning in life? that my inevitable death does not destroy. Someday death is going to come to those I love and to me, and soon not only will I not exist, but eventually no one will exist who remember anything that I've written or done. So why am I going to all this effort? What's it all for? Where does it all lead? What difference does it make whether I do this or whether I do nothing at all? See, there are a lot of people in our world today who live intoxicated with life, 
But as soon as they become sober, they see that their life is a fraud. How often I've heard, you know, I can't understand the meaning of life, so I just don't think about it. If our life has no anchor outside of itself, the psalmist says, it's like chaff with no permanence. But the psalmist goes on, but not the wicked. They are like worthless chaff scattered by the wind. They will be condemned at the time of judgment. Sinners will have no place among the godly. Not only does life here on earth seem meaningless, but worse yet, at the end, they will stand under God's judgment. All of us will. The Bible says each person is destined to die once, and after that comes the judgment, Hebrews 9.27. At the end of our life, we will stand before God. What will it be like for us in that moment? Have you ever thought about that? Have you, you say, Rod, that you sound like one of those crazy TV preachers. Well, maybe, but I'm telling you something you know to be true. Jesus asked the question in Mark's Gospel, the 8th chapter, what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? What accomplishment in this life will you trade for your soul? What earthly dream will you say was worth forfeiting your soul for eternity? See, the psalmist is putting before us two ways to live. Psalm 1 says, the person who knows God lives with an abundant, never-ceasing source of joy that endures throughout all the seasons of life, and when they die, they are received into eternal glory. The ungodly live with an increasingly suffocating sense of that life is futile. They have no recourse in times of pain, They can find no deeper meaning in suffering, and when they die, they receive God's judgment on their sin. In this life, those who have committed their life to Jesus Christ are going to experience pain and suffering. It comes to all of us, but our reward is spending eternity in the presence of God. Unbelievers, on the other hand, may enjoy some fleeting pleasures this side of the grave, but they have no future. Over and over in the Psalms, we are shown these two ways to live. Which one will we choose? Now the psalmist does one other thing in this psalm, and I want to show it to you before we close, because he reveals the secret to truly being happy. It's not enough to simply be a Christian. It's not enough to try Jesus. It's not enough just to go to church. Go back to verse 1. Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or stand around with sinners, or join in with mockers, The psalmist is not talking here about the way we think. He's talking about where we find our identity. And he's saying, let our mind and let our behaviors and let our identity be shaped by the word of God. It's not enough just to come to church. It's not enough just to be a Christian. It's not enough just to be saved. We have to drive our roots, the roots of our soul, deep into God's word so that our thinking and our actions and our identity are shaped by that word. God's word must become an anchor for our soul and roots that go so deep that whatever the seasons that we pass through in this life, whether it's winter or the winters of loneliness or the droughts of depression or storms of temptation, our soul is going to be able to remain steadfast. That's the third point. We won't be happy until we drive our roots deep in the word of God. Some of us need to get more serious, a lot more serious, about two things. 
One is the word of God. See where the psalmist says in verse 2, but they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. It's a reminder that meditation on God's word is not a duty, it's a delight. And when we fall, you know, when we fall in love with someone, when we fall in love with someone, we know that it's not a duty to love that person. It's a delight. So too, the word of God becomes such a delight to us that it frees us from the seductions of this world. We only escape the pleasures of this world through a greater pleasure in the word of God. Some of us have never experienced that. The word of God is just a religious duty, something we put on our checklist so that we can feel guilty about it because we haven't read it enough. But there's no delight in it for us. The great revivalist preacher Jonathan Edwards once said, sometimes only mentioning a single word will cause my heart to burn within me. Only seeing the name of Christ or some attribute of God will suddenly make my heart burn and suddenly God appears glorious to me, making me have exalting thoughts of him. See, when we learn to enjoy the things of God, it will carry us above the thoughts of our own situation in life. And the reason may, many of us struggle spiritually is that we don't know much about having joy in God. We can only escape the pleasures of this world through the pleasures of God's word. Look at verse 6. For the Lord watches over the path of the godly, but the path of the wicked leads to destruction. The psalmist says, God, my greatest joy is that I know you and that you know me. And if you've ever been married, you know that on your wedding day, you weren't particularly concerned about other people in the world. In that moment, you were consumed with the one you were about to marry. The psalmist talks about how he is consumed with God. Some of you have never gotten to that point in your life. And that's why you struggle so much spiritually. You may say, Rod, I, I, I lo I'd love to feel that way about God. I'd love to crave his word. I'd love to feel that way, but I just don't. How do I do that? The answer simply is confess your cold heart to God. Listen, one thing I've learned over the years, he's a God who overflows with grace for all who come to him in time of need. He never turns away the sick. He never turns away the brokenhearted. He never turns away those of us who cry out for mercy. Jesus heals spiritually dead people like us. He heals those of us who are spiritually sick. So delight in the word of God and then meditate on that word. You know, the Hebrew word for meditate literally means to mumble it to yourself, to mumble the gospel over and over and over. I once uh, heard meditation compared to how a cow chews its cud. Cow wakes up in the morning, eats some grass, and then lies down to take a nap. After her nap, she regurgitates the grass that she ate. She chews on it a little bit, extracting some more nutrients, and then lies down and takes another nap. Then wakes up and regurgitates it again and continues this process until all the nutrients are gone. That's what we're to do with the Bible. Read your Bible like a cow. <laughs> You've never... You've never heard a sermon application like that before, have you? Be a cow. We will only delight in the Word of God when we take time to meditate on it. We've got to get a lot more serious about the Bible, to read it, to memorize it, to study it in small groups, to meditate on it. And secondly, we've got to get a lot more serious about the church. 
psalmist says, don't stand around with sinners or join in with the mockers. You know, great messages and music might inspire us, but it is the community of faith that shapes us. The friendships that we form here at church will enrich and strengthen our life. The church and the people of God can help our children grow strong spiritually in a world that has so many negative things to offer them. The church should not be an event that we come to occasionally on the weekend. It should be our community. Our best and deepest relationship should be formed here. And that's why it's so important for each of us to volunteer, to be in a small group, to be in a Bible study class, to be teaching, to be working with youth. We're building and providing Christian community. Do you want to be happy? Do you want to be happy? Devote yourself to the Word of God and to the people of God. There is so much joy in God. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, the half-committed Christian is the most miserable person on earth. They're just enough in the world to be miserable in the presence of God and just enough into God to be miserable in the world. So today I'm inviting you to go all the way. One way or the other, either drive your roots deep into God and get serious about his word and the people of God or walk away from it. Can we ever be truly happy? Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or stand around with sinners or join in with mockers, but they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. They are like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither, and they prosper in all that they do. Let's pray. Let's pray. God, we have tasted your goodness and it has both satisfied us and made us thirsty for more. We are painfully conscious of our need of further grace. We're ashamed of our lack of desire, God, and we want to want you. We long to be filled with your presence and your spirit. We thirst to be made thirstier still, so give us grace today to rise up and to follow you. In Jesus' name.